Amen. Well, that should always be our goal to see how great God is, and that should be the goal of any sermon to drive us to see how great God is, but I really do hope that we see in our text and our passage today that we serve a, a great God, a mighty God who is worthy to be praised. So go ahead and take out your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 10. If you might not have a Bible with you, look in front of you, and we have some blue Bibles there underneath the chairs, and if you guys don't have a Bible at home, you guys are welcome to take that Bible, and that can now be your Bible, so you can have that and take it home with you. Like I said, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 10, and we've been going at a, a pretty steady pace for the last couple months since we've been in Joshua, about one chapter per week. We started off uh, a little bit slower in chapter one, but by the time we got to chapter two and we were looking at Rahab, um, it took one week. Got to chapter three, we were looking at the, the crossing of the Jordan River. In chapter four, we're looking at the, the establishment of those 12 stones to look back and remember what God did in sending his people across the Jordan River. Uh, we've been steadily working at that pace of one chapter per week, but today we're going to slow down a little bit, um, hit the brakes a little bit, and take a, a slightly deeper look at what God is doing with his nation in preserving his nation as he's continuing to pr provide for his nation and fulfilling his promises to his covenant people, Israel. Uh, we're going to be slowing down. In fact, we're going to be taking a, kind of an inside look. This is one of those chapters that contains uh, a section where we get a, a behind-the-scenes glimpse, so to speak, of what God is doing that wasn't immediately uh, available to Israel as they were going through this in, in real time. They, they didn't know what was happening in these first several verses of the chapter. And then we'll get uh, to take a look at Israel's response, how it responds to this behind-the-scenes look. And then we'll take a look at God's intervention and how he intervenes. And um, hopefully we get a real good glimpse at what God is doing in this chapter. But before we do any of that, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. God, we do thank you that, that you are a good God, that you are a gracious God. God, how great you are. God, help us to, to understand that. I pray that you would just impart that on our, our hearts and our minds this morning, that we would be in utter awe and astonishment of who you are, that we would have a, a right perspective of who we are in relationship to you, that you would humble us and help us to see that, that you are the, the all in all. You are the, the first and last beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega, and we are in absolute need and dependency of you. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would illuminate it for us, that you would speak to us and show us the things that you would have for us today. Pray these things in your holy name. Amen. All right, I want to start off by going through and I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to read the whole section that we're going to be looking at, the whole 15 verses. And it's quite a chunk, but as we're reading through that, again, I want you guys to focus on God and who God is and what God is doing. There's a lot in here for us to get distracted about. There's a lot of really cool stuff that's going on here, but I want us to try to focus on what God is up to, what God is doing, and how he is at work in these verses. So starting in Joshua 10, verse 1, it says, Now it came about that when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king, and that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land, that he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, 
and all its men were mighty. Therefore Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, sent word to Hoham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jermoth, and to Jephia, king of Lachish, and to Deber, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us take and attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. So the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they with all their armies, and camped by Gibeon and fought against it. Then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the valiant warriors. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal, and the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with the great slaughter at Gibeon, and pursued them by the way of the ascent to Beth Huron, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. As they fled from before Israel, while they were at the descent of Beth Huron, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hellstones than those from whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in that day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nations avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There was no day like that before it or after it, when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. So again, there's a lot that's going on there, and we're going to jump in. We're going to look at it. Um, I've divided this into three different sections. They're rather natural. The first five verses will get a, a glimpse into the Amorites and how they're formulating this plan, trying to save themselves. In verses 6 through 9, we see how Israel kind of goes on the, the counteroffensive. They, they're stepping up to, to do something about this. And then verses 10 through 15, we'll see God at work and how uh, he intervenes supernaturally. But starting off, let's look at uh, verse 1 again, where it says, Now it came about that when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard this. So I want to go back and do a, a little bit of a, a history review on Jerusalem and how we got to this point um, and what was happening in Jerusalem at this, up until this point. So Jerusalem, we now know, is the, the capital of Israel current day, but back here, that wasn't the case. Remember that uh, the history of Israel goes all the way back, biblically speaking, to Genesis 12 when God made this covenant with Abraham. He promised Abraham this land. And shortly after that, um, he reiterated that promise to his son, to Isaac, to Jacob. And in Genesis 32, we see that Jacob is actually, he wrestles with God and his name is changed to Israel. And as soon as Genesis 34 
this land is called the, the land of Israel. It's understood and recognized as the land of Israel. Well, you'll remember that at the end of Genesis, Israel takes his family, his rather small family, only about the size of our congregation today, and he takes them down to Egypt. And they, they're enslaved for 430 years, and they spend another 40 years wandering in the desert. So all in all, they're out of this land of Israel for about 500 years. So there are 500 years for, for other people to come in and to establish land and to make that land their own land. Well, here we're looking specifically at Jerusalem, right? That Adonai Zedek, he is the king of Jerusalem. And this is a, a city that we know quite a bit about from our New Testament, right? Jesus spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. Well, this is the first time in the Bible that we actually read about this city mentioned as Jerusalem in that way anyway. Some 1,400 years before Jesus, this is the first time that Jerusalem is called Jerusalem in the Bible. You can go back and you can look in Genesis 14, and there it's referred to as Salem. Salem, which would later become Jerusalem, right? Um, that's in Genesis 14. Now, here we're dealing with this, this man, this king of Jerusalem, whose name is Adonai Zedek, right? And a lot of people have made a connection between this man, Adonai Zedek, and Melchizedek from Genesis 14. Um, Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, he was the king over Salem, which means a, a city of peace. And now here, Adonai Zedek, whose name means Lord of Righteousness, he is king over Jerusalem, the foundation of peace. So there's some interesting stuff going on there. We're not really going to dive into that too much. But again, if you want to do that study, it is an interesting study. You can look at um, Genesis 14, uh, make a little pit stop in Psalm 110, verse 4, and then look at Hebrews 5, 6, and especially 7 really talks about Melchizedek. But the, the biggest point of unity that I want to draw out between these two men, Melchizedek and Adonizedek, goes beyond just their name and the similarities of their name, but it's the fact that they are king over this city, over Salem or Jerusalem. They are kings at different times and different periods over this city of peace. Now, if you know your history, then you'll find it um, seemingly ironic that Jerusalem is referred to as the city of peace, right? Because Jerusalem has exchanged hands some 35 times. It's been the center of uh, war after war after war. And this city of peace could, um, it could arguably be called the most contentious city in, in all of history. There's a lot of war, a lot of fighting that goes along um, or goes around over in Jerusalem not only in biblical times, but even in current times. Jerusalem is a, a pretty bloody place, right? And so we need to recognize that this city of peace isn't named as such for uh, its history, but rather for its destiny, that one day God is going to make all things new, including a new Jerusalem, including a new city of peace, that there is going to be true peace in Jerusalem and for Jerusalem. But that day is not today. That day is definitely not in Joshua chapter 10. In Joshua chapter 10, neither God nor Joshua had peace in mind for the city of Jerusalem. They were going into Jerusalem to attack it, to, to conquer it, and to make this land their own, realizing God has promised this land to them. And our text says that 
Adonizadek, the king of Jerusalem, he feared Joshua and the sons of Israel greatly. He was terrified. He had an understanding of who they were and, and what they had done. He had heard about God bringing them up out of Egypt and uh, through the Red Sea, through the Jordan. He had heard about specifically uh, their conquest in Ai back in chapter 7 and 8 and how they conquered Ai. Now he's making a, a comparison between Ai and uh, Gibeon saying that uh, Gibeon is, is much stronger than, than Ai. So they're now united with, with Jerusalem. I think we have something to, to worry about. He was terrified. He was fearful. Now, let's look back just a little bit in, in Joshua chapter 7 and remind ourselves of uh, Israel's understanding, their perspective on Ai. And in Joshua 7 verse 3, after Joshua has sent out some, some spies to go and check out the land, it says that they returned to Joshua and they said to him, Do not let all the people go up but only about two or 3,000 men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil there, for they are few. So Israel kind of maybe miscalculated this, um, but remember that they were just coming off of this great victory in Jericho. So perhaps their faith was bolstered, and that's not even taken into account Achan's sin and why they uh, didn't have immediate victory at Ai. And in fact, if we look forward a little bit in Joshua chapter 8, verse 3, we do see that they ended up taking all the men there. Uh, they weren't taking any chances now. It says, so Joshua rose with all the people of war to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 men, valiant warriors, and he sent them out at night. And then a little bit later over in verse 25, we do see that they actually prevailed against Ai, against the 12,000 who were at Ai, and they, they conquered that, um, that city. And then um, again, back in Joshua chapter 10, Adonai Zedek, he's making a comparison between Ai and Gibeon. He's saying, well, they came in, they, they conquered Ai, and that was enough to, to put fear in the heart of Adonai Zedek. Um, but they also... Gibeon on their side. Gibeon who is greater than Ai, both in numbers and in might. At the end of verse 2, he says that all of the men at, at Gibeon, they were mighty men. And they're greater than the men who are Ai. And now they are allied with, uh, with Israel. And they're coming down to attack Jerusalem. And so Adonai Zedek, he has reason to fear. He has reason to be worried. Not only because of the history of Jerusalem, what, or Israel, and what they've done in the past. Um, but because they were coming in, they now had possession of four main cities in central Canaan. They were separating the, the southern zone from the northern zone. And Adonai Zedek being down in the southern zone, he gathers all of his southern buddies and he's trying to uh, come up with a way to, uh, to stop Israel, to stop them from coming into the land in their, their southern conquest. So in verses 3 through 5, that's what we read about. These five different kings who come together and they're, they're uniting. They are making their own alliance. They are pooling all of their resources, all of their armies, and they are putting forth their, their best effort, calling in all their buddies, all their homies, saying, we need help. Israel's coming. Uh, come help us fight, right? We need to get ready to, to fight for our lives. They're defending their lives. Now, I want us to just slow down a little bit and try to get inside of their, their minds because these were real people, this King Adonai Zedek and uh, 
the, the people under him, these other four kings and all the people who were under them, um, it can be easy for us to just think, okay, well, this is history, right? Just black words on, on white paper. But these were real people uh, who lived real lives. They were fearful for their lives. They had generation, generations within this land. This was their land where they had lived what they knew as home. And um, we know a, a little bit about this region, right? We know that they were likely an, an agricultural people. That they were likely farming olives and figs, same kind of stuff that we read about in the Gospels, that there was all kinds of fish there in the, the Sea of Galilee, and um, they were likely fishermen and had uh, different sheep and stuff to farm and to uh, take care of. So they were real people who were raising families, just trying to get along and, and trying to survive. I think we need to, to stop and, and realize that instead of just brushing over it like we have a, a tendency sometimes to do. And notice that um, in getting all these five different kings together, their goal isn't to go up against Israel. That's not what they're wanting to do. Remember, they're fearful of Israel. And they're wanting to, to save their lives um, from Israel. And so what they do, rather than go up against Israel, is they're going up against Gibeon, this city that we learned about last week, who came along and they made this uh, deceitful alliance with Israel. Remember, they lied about who they were. They said that they had this really old bread and really old worn out sandals and they were there and they said, oh, we're from a, a far off land. Please make a, a treaty, make an alliance with us. Uh, we don't want to die, right? And Joshua did that against the, the counsel of the Lord. He didn't uh, seek God and his counsel and they made this treaty against them. And kings are coming up not against Israel, but against this great city. Like verse 2 says, this royal city, this city that is full of mighty men, that is who these kings are coming up against to attack. Now if we look at uh, verses 6 through 9, we'll see that Israel isn't just going to, to sit back and, and take this, but Israel has a, a counteroffensive. Israel responds on behalf of Gibeon. Let's look at uh, verse 6. Verse 6 says, then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So as, as weak as it is, Gibeon is cashing in their hand. They are calling out to Israel and they're reminding them of this deceitful, scheming, conniving covenant that they had made with them before, and they're asking for Israel to come in to save them from these five different kings and their armies. Verse 7 says, So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the peoples of the war with him, and all of the valiant warriors. Joshua gathers all of his people, and he's going to go to the defense of this uh, smaller people, the, the Gibeonites who were deceiving him not long ago. Now, I know that some of you, since last week you've been wondering, was, was Israel right in making this covenant with Gibeon? Were they justified in, in doing that, in making this agreement, this covenant with people, and uh, ignoring the direct commandment of God who had told them, you need to go in and destroy all the people? Uh, I, I know that's been going on because I've gotten multiple questions this week. Hey, is that okay? Uh, and that's a, a good question. That, these are questions that we should be asking as we approach our Bible. 
Uh, but looking at the next verse, I think we have some, some insight into how God felt about this whole matter because he's, he's jumping on board. He's getting behind Joshua and behind Israel, uh, seemingly putting his stamp of approval on what they're about to do. So Joshua 10 verse 8 says that the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands, and not one of them shall stand before you. So now... God is, he's getting behind him. He's saying, go ahead. I've, I've given them to you. I've handed them over into your hands. Notice that he's using the, the past tense here. He says, I have given them to you. He's making a, a promise with God, or God is making a promise to Joshua, rather, that he has uh, provided the, the victory for Joshua and Israel. This is something that he's been doing all along, remember? This isn't news to Joshua. Joshua's not going into this situation wondering, uh, is, is this a good idea? He's not gambling, uh, but God has already told him from the get-go that he has uh, blessed this endeavor into this promised land. Look with me back in, in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. This is just one of many places where God is encouraging Joshua to go forward. He says, to Joshua and his people, that no man will be able to stand before you all of the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. God has promised that Joshua was going to go in. He was going to have victory. And now God in his graciousness and his goodness, he's reminding Joshua yet again, I've already done it. It's already finished. They're already handed over to you and they're in your hands. Um, God was reestablishing this confidence and this encouragement within Joshua and his people in, in going up against these, these five kings who were attacking Gibeon. And in doing so, we can see that God was uh, backing Gibeon. He was helping Gibeon to survive through his people, through his army. And not only has God... Um, promised victory for Israel and for Joshua, but he's brought all five of these kings together. So instead of Israel having to go out and have five different battles with five different kings and five different regions, God, once again, in his graciousness, he has brought them together so that Israel can have a little bit more ease and just in one battle they can go in and they can do what God has called them to do in uh, purging the land so that he can establish his promise with his promised people. Look with me in verse 9. And here we see that Joshua says, So Joshua came up upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. All night, Joshua took his people and they're marching from Gilgal over to, to Gibeon to protect these people. And this is quite a journey that, that Joshua and his men are taking. Joshua, right after being told by God, yes, they're yours, they're given into your hands, we see that uh, he is not sitting on his hands, but he is taking action and getting up and, and moving. And this is a, an important part. This is something that I want us to all really see and realize and to, to know that God is still working here. God is the one who is at work, behind the scenes. God uses means to accomplish his ends. That God is immediately, through other means, through natural means, fulfilling his promise to his people. Now when I say that God is doing this immediately, 
I am opposing this with how God works immediately. And when I use that word immediately, I don't want us to think about time as in God does some things immediately, really quick, and then God does other things slowly. That is a, a true statement, but that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about how God works immediately and immediately. When God works immediately, it means that he is doing something by himself, something that is um, without the use of a mediator. It is unmediated. He is doing it directly by himself. We see this uh, in creation. When God speaks into creation, let there be light and uh, let there be, let the, the expanses divide. He is doing this by himself without anybody else or any other tool that he is using in between. We see the same thing in the New Testament, many of the miracles. When Jesus calls to Lazarus, Lazarus comes forward. Um, he is doing that immediately without the, the use of a mediator. However, uh, we see other examples like in Luke 10 when Jesus sends out the, the 70 disciples and he says, go out in my name and do these things in my name. Heal these people and do these miraculous signs in my name. God is still at work. Jesus is still the one who is um, operating. He is still the ultimate cause behind those people who were being killed, being healed. But he is doing that work immediately through the, the use and the function of a mediator. Let me give you this, this example. In, in my house, we've been playing a, a lot of billiards lately. Um, and if you think about playing pool or, or billiards, um, when you get to the end of the game, hopefully if you haven't already messed up the game beforehand and you know, scratched or hit the eight ball in, the, the goal of the game is to finally sink the eight ball into a pocket, right? When you're playing eight ball. Um, and whoever is, is doing that, the person shooting it, they are the ultimate cause. They are the ones who are actually sinking the eight ball into the hole. However, in a sense, you could say that they are um, using the, the cue stick as a mediatory device, right? That it is being mediated through the cue stick, also through the cue ball. The person who is shooting, they're the ones ultimately who is causing the, the eight ball to go into the hole. Um, but immediately, it's the cue ball that hits the eight ball. That has the, the immediate contact on the eight ball that sends the eight ball into the hole. So God works both immediately and immediately. And uh, we'll see that through, throughout this text. We need to, to keep that in mind that God, even when he is working immediately through other means, he is still the one at, who is at work. When you are blessed or encouraged by somebody at church, um, when you are, are learning in a way, when, when God intervenes and um, he helps you in, in your health, God is still doing those things through immediate forces through immediate means. Um, I think that, that Joshua definitely understood this because he wasn't just sitting back and saying, okay, God has promised this, this victory to me, so I'm just going to sit back and, and watch God work. Joshua knew that God worked through means, that God worked immediately, and he was getting ready to go out and to act to um, show that he was responsible and doing what God has called him to do. We have to realize that God's sovereignty does not negate the, the responsibility of man. And as a, a church that loves to, to focus on the sovereignty of God, we, 
We love to, to lift up God and say that God and God alone is God, that he does whatever he wants. That, um, nobody tells God what to do. Nobody is God's counselor. He has established the beginning from the end. And as such, as a church who really highlights the sovereignty of God, we can fall into the trap of being complacent, of growing complacent or apathetic. Uh, we can have that tendency. We need to guard ourselves against that, of just sitting back and saying, okay, well, I'm going to let God do his thing because he's sovereign and he is behind everything. He is in control of everything. He is, once again, he's the ultimate cause of everything, right? He's the one who's shooting the pool stick. And we can realize that without sitting back and being apathetic. We need to realize that without sitting back and being apathetic. We cannot fall into that trap. And Joshua, I think, does a, a great job of realizing the sovereignty of God while still working in, and moving forward and doing what, what God is doing through the immediate means of Joshua and his people. And the immediate means that God is using here in Joshua chapter 10 is Israel walking up and marching all night uh, with, with all their men. They're going 20 plus miles from Gilgal to Gibeon. That's quite a journey. They didn't have cars or, or scooters or they're peddling it, right? They're just walking the whole way with all their armor on them as well. And not only that, but they're going up an incline. They go up 3,300 feet to get there throughout the night. And our text says that when they get there, um, that they came upon them suddenly in verse 9. So they didn't get there after walking all night for 20 miles with their big packs on and um, going up hill 3,300 feet and, and take a rest. They got there and they were immediately... Um, taking them and, and slaughtering them as God had commanded them to do. Let's look at, at verse 10 and see how God is at work in this whole situation. Verse 10 says, And the Lord confounded them before Israel, and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, and he pursued them by the way of the ascent to Beth Huron and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. So, uh, let you know that in this verse, there's uh, a little bit of ambiguity. You might notice if you have a different translation that your translation may read differently from what we have uh, up on the screen or what I'm reading from in the New American Standard Bible. And this ambiguity exists because of the, the sentence structure in the Hebrew. And there are several different versions that render this in different ways. And uh, it, it differs in whom they recognize as the, the active party, whether or not God is actively pursuing them himself, whether or not this is an act of, of Yahweh, or whether or not this is an act of Israel, and Israel is pursuing them. We know that God is fighting for Israel. We're told that later on explicitly in the passage. We know back from chapter 5 that when, when Joshua had this encounter with God, um, that God said, or the, the commander of the Lord's army, he said, I'm, I'm neither for you or against you. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. So God is definitely at work in uh, this situation as well as that situation. Again, God is the ultimate cause behind these things. Uh, let me read this quote to you from Del Ralph Davis. He says, The traditional Hebrew text assumes Yahweh is the subject of all four verbs. I think that this is what the writer intended. Granted, it may sound strange to us to hear that Yahweh is pursuing the enemy, but that is precisely the point. He wants us to see that it is Yahweh who is the fighter. He is the warrior. He is the victor. He is the one who crushes the enemies. So again, 
we realize that God is ultimately behind this, right? And the language here even seems to suggest God is the one who's chasing them down. God is the one who is pursuing and crushing the enemies of Israel. And uh, we see that explicitly in, in verse 11, that God is behind this, but he is still working through Israel. So in verse 11, it says that as they fled from before Israel. So they are running away from Israel, but God is still working immediately through Israel, right? God is the one behind the scenes. He's working, but they're running from Israel. That's kind of a, a trip to realize that there are two different things going on at once, right? God is pursuing them, but they're running from Israel. God is working immediately through his people. But then get this, back in verse 10 or 11, it says, as they fled from before Israel, while they were at the descent of Beth Huron, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them. God started throwing rocks at them, right? There's no way that that could be misconstrued as something that Israel was doing. God here is absolutely working immediately, right? Something that God is doing to them without the use of a mediator, without any kind of go-between between, between uh, God himself and what he's doing, throwing rocks at these Israelites, or not the Israelites, rather, the people from Jerusalem. I hope you can see where I'm getting confused because Jerusalem, like I said, is later the, the capital city of Israel. But God is attacking these, these five kings, this five king confederacy on behalf of, first of all, Israel, but Gibeon as well. God is working both immediately and immediately. Uh, at, at this point, I, I want to talk about how in this chapter, especially later on as we get into the, the sun and the moon stopping, there have been many people who have come up against this chapter and they've tried to, to rationalize this chapter away in a, a naturalistic way, trying to suppress the, the supernatural effects of God and these uh, miraculous things that God has done to have a, a natural understanding for uh, how the world could have functioned, how these things could have come to play. But those people never really address this verse in verse 11, how God is throwing rocks at these Amorites and how he is doing so with absolute precision. He is striking down and killing these Amorites even more so than Israel did with the swords. And yet Israel isn't being caught up in all these rocks falling down on their heads, right? God is supernaturally at work here. And uh, I think we, we need to realize that um, that those people who try to, to test and um, naturally uh, explain this away don't understand the, the God of the Bible. And again, God, he is precise in his aiming of these rocks so that these men were falling to a greater degree than even when Israel was approaching them with the sword. And that kind of, again, now commonplace Joshua we are tempted to find ourselves questioning God. Why is it that, that God would, would do such a thing? That God would come up against these people? Again, these, these normal people, they're trying to survive. They're trying to live their normal lives, right? Just uh, up against uh, men and, and women and children just living out their lives. Um, that can be a, a hard thing. We've addressed it before. We're going to address it again because there's more of that in Joshua. But let me just remind you of our, our summary of the book of Joshua. That Yahweh keeps his promises to his people, right? By powerfully saving his people through faith and purging the evil among them. 
therefore we shall courageously follow him into blessing. So we can't approach this with the, the misunderstanding of that these people who are currently occupying the land are, uh, that they're just neutral, that they're neither for God nor against God. Uh, they are, uh, this summary again says that the and this conquest is to purge the evil out from among them. And these people who are here, they have suppressed the truth of the knowledge that it, God has placed within them and within the world. We're just saying how great thou art, right? These people who lived in this area, they were able to look out and they were able to see how great the, the work of God was. And they suppress that truth in their unrighteousness. And they exchange the truth of God for, for a lie, for images that were of animals and birds and, and reptiles. And they worship them rather than God. And they receive in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. That's what we're told over in, in Romans chapter 1. Now, what is the, the due penalty for their perversion, the due penalty for their blasphemy against this God who has revealed himself to them and whom they have rejected? Well, let's look at Leviticus 24, verse 16. And there, uh, Moses says, Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone that is the, the penalty, death, by stoning, right? Remember back in chapter 7, that's what they did with Achan. When Achan blasphemed God, he took when he shouldn't have taken. They took him out and all Israel came out and they stoned Achan and his family. Well, here, God has taken things into his own hands, right? He's stoning these blasphemers. He's stoning these people who are living in sin in this city, in this region that he has promised to his people. God is coming up against them in a, a just way, just as God always does, right? Everything that God does is just and right, and we are in no position to question what he is doing or why he is doing it. But that is the, the natural consequence. That is what we deserve for our sin, for blasphemy against God. We deserve utter destruction. We deserve death. And that's what these people here were experiencing firsthand in, in real time, that God was coming up against them he was taking things into his own hands and he was stoning these blasphemers of the Lord. Now let's look at verses 12 through 14. Another exciting section in this chapter. 12 through 14 says, Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher that the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day? There was no day like that before it or after it, when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Now, that would be... Amazing, right? Can you just imagine the responses of everybody who's involved there? If you were one of these kings and you saw Israel in the, the sight of, of, or Joshua in the sight of all Israel, talk to the sun and say, oh sun, stand still, just stop moving. And then it were actually to happen. They must have been filled with absolute fear and absolute dread and, and dismay. A feeling of absolute defeat, which was very shortly after realized, right, they were defeated. Um, I'm sure that that had that effect upon them. Think about Israel and how they would have responded to seeing God just 
seemingly push the pause button on all these uh, different things that are going on in the, the celestial world, and um, it just all suddenly stopped. What an adrenaline boost that would offer to Israel, right? Who's in the midst of this battle, and they're seeing uh, this God act, this God who has already promised and reminded them that he is with them, that he is going to come in, he is going to give them this land that he has promised to them, and now he is showing himself to be faithful in this amazing, outstanding way that uh, defies our understanding, doesn't it? And this was, remember, a, a sign that was not only affecting Israel and these five kings, but the sun stopped. It stayed there, and the moon stopped and stayed there. So imagine the response of people who are in a completely different region, completely different country. They'd be affected by this as well. And they wouldn't have any idea what's going on. They wouldn't know that this was a result of God supernaturally intervening and um, stopping the, the regular cosmic cycle, which has taken place for, for thousands of years on uh, like, like clockwork, right? Oh, we literally set our clocks based on the, the sun and the moon. And it has continued to happen that way since. Um, they as well would be just absolutely flabbergasted, I'm sure. And at this point, as I mentioned, there are many people who take issue with this and they want to try to explain this away in some kind of naturalistic way. And there are many skeptics who make a big deal about the, the language that's used here. This uh, geocentric language saying that, well, Joshua, he's just a, he's an old Israelite. He doesn't know any better. And in fact, the people who wrote the Bible, if they knew any better, they would know that uh, the sun and the moon, they don't go around the earth, but the earth goes around the sun. And so um, this language doesn't even really make sense. Well, uh, we refer to this kind of speech as phenomenological. That's a, a big word, right? That's a good scrabble word for you especially if you get it on a, a triple word score, phenomenological. Uh, what that means is that we just talk about things from our perspective, the way that we see things, right? And so Joshua used this phenomenological language to talk about the, the sun and the moon and how they appear from our, language, from our perspective. And we still do this today in, in modern language, talking about the sun rising and the sun setting, right? This is, is normal for us to do. Well, other skeptics would... Um, they'll often come forward and they'll talk about how uh, the effects of this would be absolutely cataclysmic. It would be catastrophic. It would result in all kinds of uh, tornadoes and tsunamis and um, that it would result in an, an ice age, that it would just be at the end of the earth if the world were to actually stop in place and God were to just, again, seemingly reach out and, and put his hands on the globe and stop it. Well, this kind of argument just speaks to the, the absolutely low view of God that these critics have. Um, they're certainly not talking about the God of the Bible. They're certainly not talking about our God, the God of Christianity. And just stop and think about how inconsistent that thinking is, that God has this incredible ability to, to reach out and to stop the earth, to, to put a pause on that. But he is utterly powerless to, to mitigate the resulting disasters that would come from that. That makes no sense whatsoever. Our God is a, a big God. He is a powerful God. He is able to do whatever he wants in the heavens and on the earth. And uh, that kind of argument is even, it's not even a, a coherent argument. To, it's resulting from just trying to put a supernatural God inside of a naturalistic box. 
end to embrace the Bible on, on one foot and reject it on the other foot. Listen to this quote from, from Warren Worsby. He says, Why try to explain away a miracle? What do we prove? Certainly not that we're smarter than God. Either we believe in a God who can do anything, or we must accept a Christian faith that's non-miraculous. And that does away with the inspiration of the Bible, the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can't take a God and put him into our own naturalistic understanding. We can't strip him of his godness, his ability to, to do things that are outside of nature, things that we can't understand. That is to make a God who is a God of our own understanding, who isn't God at all. And um, as, as Warren Wiersbe says, why, why even do that? Because if you do that, you are, um, you're trashing the, the second half of the Bible. All these things that are definitional to Christianity, the bodily resurrection, inspirational Bible, virgin birth, you can't deny those things and maintain a, a God who is not God, who doesn't work supernaturally. Now I want to... Uh, go over to one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I want to go over to Job chapter 48. Not 48, 38. <laughs> Job chapter 38. And uh, let's look at, at these four, first few verses in Job that really highlight the, the glory of God, the majesty of God, the kind of God who can just reach out and stop the earth, the kind of God who can uh, raise himself from the dead. Job chapter 38, starting in verse 1, says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by my words without knowledge? That's a, that's a heavy verse. <laughs> you, you dare to come and talk to me? You don't even know. Verse 3, Now gird up your loins, Job. Act like a man, Job, and I will ask you, and you, Job, instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? He wasn't there, right? Tell me if you have understanding. This continues for, for chapters, by the way, but let's just jump down to verse 8. And it says, Or who enclosed the sea with doors? Job certainly didn't, right? When bursting forth, that went out from the womb. Now look at verse 12. It says, Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Well, well Job didn't, but... It seems like Joshua kind of did something similar to that, right? That he kind of commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place. Remember that back in, in Joshua chapter 10, it says in verse 12 that Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day and he commanded, O son, stand still at Gibeon. Well, what does that mean? What do we do with that? that and down in verse 14, where it says that there was no day like this before or after. It's not talking about the sun just standing still, though I don't think that's happened before or after either. But look at the text. It says that there was no day like this when the Lord listened to the voice of a man. How do we understand that? That the Lord listened to the voice of a man. Now, if we just look back up into verse 10, when Israel is pursuing Gibeon, we remember that God is at work there, right? God is working immediately through his people Israel. God is behind the scenes in Israel acting as the immediate force working upon them. God is still at work, working immediately. Verse 11, when God decided to throw rocks at people, he is working immediately, right? He's doing that by himself without the use of, of anybody else. Well, here, 
uh, it seems as if um, Joshua is the one who is commanding, right? He's commanding the sun. Oh, sun, be still. Oh, moon, don't, don't move. You stay right where you're at. And that God is mediating. That's certainly different, right? That God is, is stepping in and he is mediating in this situation. Joshua didn't have the power or the authority to stop the sun, did he? He didn't have the power or the authority to stop the moon. And so he is speaking to the sun and the moon. He's commanding them, stop. But we know that the, the almighty, the all-powerful, the only God of the universe is the one who had to put a pause on that. He had to intervene. He had to stop. And we have to remind ourselves again that God is still the, the ultimate cause. That God is the one who is making the shots. Again, kind of going back to my, my illustration of the, the pool table, if we were to kind of interject this situation into that, God is the one who is drawing back on the cue stick, right? He's the one who is putting the power behind it. He's the one who is um, giving Joshua even the ability. Joshua can only live and move and have his being within God. Joshua can't draw his next breath without God giving him that ability. Joshua wouldn't have these thoughts running around in his mind that, well, maybe I should talk to the sun and command the sun if God had not put those thoughts into the mind of Joshua. And Joshua, in this illustration, in, in my mind anyway, he would act in that place of the cue stick. And all he did was barely tap that, that little cue ball. And that's where God intervenes. And uh, Joshua, in, in tapping that cue ball, he has no power, no authority to make that cue ball move at all. But God has to take that, and he has to do the work to ultimately put the eight ball into the hole or to, to stop the sun in its place, to stop the moon in its place. God is the one who is ultimately behind everything, and he is uh, working through both immediate and immediate uh, ways to, to do what he wants to do, to, um, to exercise his purpose in creation. Now remember that God has already told Joshua what he was going to do, didn't he? he told him back in chapter 1, he's told him since, he told him here, that he has already given them into his hands. And so Joshua is really just praying out in faith. He's calling out to the son in faith, you need, you need to stop. God has already told him that he was going to give him the, the victory. Now, we need to, to ask ourselves, what does this mean for, for us and for our prayer lives? Uh, are we able to do that? Um, I don't think so. We have to remind ourselves that we're not Joshua, right? Um, Again, Joshua knew the plan of God. God had taken, he had revealed his plan to Joshua and Joshua had immediate access to the voice of God, to the command of God, to the will of God. And you and I, we don't. Our uh, communication from God is mediated through his word. So we need to go to his word to, first of all, find out what we ought to pray, how we ought to pray, and then secondly, to find out what God's plan is for our lives. So you'll remember that the disciples once, they asked Jesus, how should we pray? And he told them, well, we'll pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Well, consider this, that the disciples and, and us as well, we wouldn't even know how to pray to God. We wouldn't know who God is unless it was revealed to us in Scripture. We wouldn't know how to hallow or revere or respect or honor or glorify to lift up the name of God unless we were directed by Scripture. And we would have no idea about the, the heart and the will of God unless it was revealed to us in Scripture so that we could pray 
in accordance with God's will, which is exactly how we are to pray. We are to pray in accordance with God's will. So we need his word, uh, which is mediated to us through the Bible in order to properly pray and commune with God. There are several aspects of prayer, right? We pray um, to to show a, a love and a, a praise and a gratitude for God, an adoration and a, a worship. That is a vital aspect of our prayer life. We pray uh, prayers of confession, telling God, this is, this is who I am, and I'm in utter need and utter dependence of you. We pray uh, with, with affirmation of a, a spirit of obedience. We want to follow after God. Our desire is to, uh, to be obedient to Him. We pray with thanksgiving in our hearts. But what about this aspect of uh, supplication? What about this aspect of appealing to God to intercede? What is it that you and I are actually doing when we're doing that? Are we directing God somehow? Are we trying to to change circumstances? Are we trying to affect future history? Um, No. We need to, to understand that is not what we are doing through prayer. That our supplications aren't meant to manipulate God or to change God in some way, but they are simply a, a humble request coming before God, recognizing that He has a plan, that He has a desire, and we need to uh, align ourselves with His desire. Prayer is not about us getting things, but it is for us to to get on things, to to identify ourselves with God and with His causes and His purpose, to see what it is that he is doing and to align ourselves with what God is doing. We're not seeking to change his mind. Uh, We just want uh, what he wants, which is ultimately best. And you and I, we ought to be striving to communicate with God, to be on his page. God is the one who is in control. God is the one who is doing things. We ought to be seeking to walk in his will and not trying to put our own kind of English spin on the, the way that he is directing us and the things that he is doing, but rather submitting to him without being uh, stagnantly complacent, right? We don't want to sit back and just let him do his things. We want to realize that, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is in control, but we have a responsibility as his creatures to act in an immediate way, right? To be used of God in the ways that he directs us to be used by him. I want to, before we close, share one more quote. This is a great quote. Another one from Del Ralph Davis. He says that Yahweh listened to the voice of a man. Astounding. And that truly is. Isn't it still amazing that God listens to the voice of a man or a woman who comes to him? Ought we not catch our breath to think that God who is seated on high stoops down and bends his ear to lips of dust and ashes? When he calls to me, God says about man, I will answer that man. I will answer him. Who ever heard of a God like that? That God doesn't only answer the prayers of Joshua, these amazing outstanding prayers, which were in accordance with God's revealed plan to him, but he answers our prayers when we pray in accordance to his revealed will to us. That is amazing. That is such a a resource that is underutilized in the Christian church that we have direct communication, that that bell has been broken in the temple. We have a a high priest in Christ who who acts as our mediator, right, between God and man. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And we have direct communication, direct access to him through 
prayer. That is that's a beautiful reality. And I just want to, I want to close by reading a, a portion of a psalm that really highlights perfect sovereignty. And it looks forward to a day when Jerusalem will truly be a city of peace. And that this sovereign, majestic God does in fact hear our prayers. Let's close with Psalm 102, starting in verse 12. It says, But you, O Lord, abide forever, and your name to all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion, for it is time to be gracious to her, for the appointed time has come. Surely your servants find pleasure in her stones and feel pity for her dust. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. Amen. For the Lord has built up Zion. He has appeared in his glory. He has regarded the prayer of the destitute and has not despised their prayer. This will be written for the generation to come that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. For he looked down from his holy height. From heaven the Lord gazed upon the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to set free those who were doomed to death, that men may tell of the name of the Lord in Zion and his praises in Jerusalem, when the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you are a, a sovereign, mighty God, that you are in control of absolutely everything, that you are the ultimate cause of all things, and that you work in this world that you've created both immediately and immediately. God, we are so unworthy to be used by you as your tools, to be the, the means that you use to, to spread your truth, that, that we would be that, that mediator between a, a perfect holy God and a fallen, depraved world is beyond me. It blows my mind, and I'm so unworthy. We are so unworthy. God, we thank you for, for who you are. We thank you for the fact that you answer prayer, that you show us your great power through, through Joshua and the fact that you have control over the celestial bodies, no less you have control over us. And we want to submit ourselves to you. We want to ask you that you would give us faith and encouragement like you gave to Joshua, that we would realize the great power of prayer, that we would utilize that. We wouldn't just sit upon it, but that we would... Uh, go forward as, as your people being willing to be used as your mediating tools in this broken, depraved universe. We pray this in your name. Amen.